The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have a guest that I'm very fond of. Uh, We did our first interview back in April of 2017. Uh, her name is Jesse Draper, and she's the founder and general partner of Halogen Ventures. So first of all, welcome, Jesse. I'm really thrilled to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be back on the show, Aaron. So, so thank you. Well, you know, I listened to our interview um, the other day, and it was number 10 out of 150 episodes and counting. And I really, for one, like we covered a lot of your history. Today, we'll cover a lot more of like what you're focused on and sort of the current environment. Um, but one of the things I was reminded of is, first of all, you're a fourth generation venture capitalist, which is kind of amazing, probably a fairly rare breed in that regard. Uh, you grew up acting and hosting your own star-studded podcast called The Valley Girls Show, which I know you said you hated the first few episodes of, but you keep them up to remind you of you know, what not to do. And I think your brother or cousin was you know, your uh, key grip or, or someone and got fired for leaving the camera on the floor, which made me chuckle. Um, and just a little bit about Halogen Ventures. So an early stage venture capital fund investing in consumer tech companies led by women and founded by women. Um, let's start with like what's happened over the last three and a half years. I know we've seen each other a couple of times. We haven't talked in three and a half years. So uh, I know I think you've had another child since we last chatted. And a lot has probably happened. And obviously we're in the midst of COVID. But tell us a little bit. This is crazy, actually, how much has happened in three years, because even just hearing those stories, I'm like, wow, I haven't even told those stories in a long time. Yeah, yeah, no, in three years, a lot has happened. So yeah, we're still, what's the same is we're still investing in early stage female founded consumer tech. We're on our second fund. Uh, We have about 62 companies, including the Skim, Flex, Lauren Schulte, who I believe you've interviewed before. Carbon 38, Glam Squad, quite a few. And it's fun because uh, previously they were probably less recognizable. And now, you know, Carbon 38 is an international athleisure marketplace partially owned by Foot Locker. And um, just to see the growth in our companies has been great. I've had a couple of big exits since you and I spoke. One, we sold Eloquy. Um, uh, I always feel weird when I say I or we sold it because clearly the founder worked incredibly hard and you support them as much as they need, but it's really, it was them. Um, so Eloquy was sold to Walmart and then This Is L, uh, the first organic tampon line was sold to PNG last year. Um, both of those were hundred million dollar exits. And then we've had a few others as well. Um, and then, yes, I've had a child we're now in the middle of an international pandemic, which has changed business in so many ways. And you and I are on Zoom and um, it's just a new world. <laughs> so we have a lot of great things going on. Um, and then also just um, kind of craziness too. I also feel like there's been a major injection of energy into this like female and diversity oriented movement. Uh, and that's been really good for us, uh, good for business and everything around it. And just kind of shining a light on the opportunity um, of investing in women and diverse founders um, and 
you know, I think three and a half years ago, that wasn't quite the case. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on the child. And this is your second, correct? Yes. Second kid. So two and, crazy little boys. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations on the successful exits. And I know, as you said, it's a little funny saying I, we, but obviously without your capital investment and probably nurturing and helping to steer a little bit, or maybe a lot of bit, uh, they probably would not have landed in the places that they did. So that's super exciting. And you're right. I think since we last talked, a couple major things have happened. We've had uh, the Me Too movement, uh, which I know has lost a little steam only because of COVID. And I think this nice development, the Black Lives Matter and you know what happened after George Floyd, that was horrific. But I think some of the protests and the awareness that are happening is good. And we will dive into the importance of diverse uh, female in particular, but BIPOC founders and, and why that matters and why it's actually good economic sense. So I'm looking forward to that. I do want to start with the reason we're getting together. And I'm going to tell people to do earmuffs. I just rewatched the movie uh, Old School. Uh, but I think it's important. Sometimes expletives actually make a point. And you're not a expletive kind of person. I think I don't think you swore in our last one at all. But you recently wrote this incredibly important uh, article, and it's really a declarative statement, and you you posted it on Medium, and it's titled, Investing in Women Isn't a Fucking Charity. And you sent this to Jim Weiss, who's our CEO and founder, and I think an investor in Halogen, and he shared it with me. And in the post, you talk about why it's smart, strategic business move, and now more urgent than ever to invest in women. So tell us a little bit more about the article, knowing we'll dive into some of the pieces of it. But what, what got you fired up to write this article? You obviously, like, something or some things put a bee in your bonnet to say, you know what, I've got to put this out there and sort of like tell people to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, Aaron, uh, thanks for asking about that. You know, this is great because it is sort of an update on the last couple of years. And I think for me, you know, you're asking about what that moment is or was, and I think it's been, um, it's sort of been a pile that's been added on, you know, I've just had, um, this weight added onto this pile over the last couple of years. You know, I think when we first started uh, talking, I was on my first fund and just getting going. And for fund one, I, I pitched hundreds of potential investors uh, to invest in the fund and um, talking to them, you, you do collect these data points. You collect these data points about, okay, well, who is a, a good investor for the fund? What type of money um, is interested in this. And, you know, for us, it typically is high net worth individuals, some institutions. Um, and what I found is there were a couple different buckets and something I didn't dive into in this article was, um, uh, enough was actually women, uh, unfortunately. So first of all, women control significantly less of the capital in the world, in the United States, just in general. And that's because, uh, men have passed down the pocketbooks from generation to generation and have been really taught not to teach us about money and to invest in money. And what women have been taught to do is give it away. So actually, I started making these realizations while pitching women. Uh, I sat down with quite a few female billionaires, with um, women investors of all sorts, women who worked in finance thinking they'd be very interested in investing in a fund that was focused on female founded companies. And I do like to just say, we have three male CEOs with a female co-founder. I love men. We need men. 
Um, this is not a man hating world. Um, you know, I think there are so many good men, but I just wanted to articulate how important it is to also invest in women and, um, bring them up with all of these companies and make sure that they're in the founding teams. Cause that just changes the dynamic overall. Um, but these women I was sitting down with, I would have six or seven meetings with, and I'd be like, so, um, are you going to invest? What's not getting you across the bridge? And what I found actually was that they would say things like, well, maybe my husband should look at this deal or, um, and I'm like, great. I've had six or seven meetings with you would have been nice to know in the beginning, or they say, I just don't understand this. And I just wrote a $3 million check to charity. And that is the wrong solution. Um, and also, uh, I, so I had that problem where the women were writing the checks to charity, not to an investment that we were offering um, because they felt more comfortable giving it away. And I'm like, so we actually are going to make more of an impact and make you more money uh, if you invest in, you know, this fund. And then men were putting us in this charity bucket. Um, And at first I was just taking all the charity checks kind of being like, yeah, we're doing a good thing. I guess you can look at it like charity, but like, we're not throwing away money. We're making a ton of money. So I felt like I needed to lay out the business case and just say, look, we're not a charity. We're a for-profit opportunity. We are a venture capital fund like any other venture capital fund. Um, Because I was finding that people would equate us to charity. And so they were only wanting to invest if they felt like they had the money to give away. And I didn't, I I just, I don't know. I I wanted to change the stigma around that. Um, And I think that is also comes with the territory of like impact investing. And, um, you know, it's been given this title of impact, which sounds like charity. And so that is so positive, but also does uh, investing in women and minorities a disservice too, because it is one of the biggest opportunities today, especially today, because people are seeing it and it's an underserved market. And, you know, if you know anything about investing, you want to get into, uh, the underserved market because it's like the biggest place to grow. Um, and we're also in the private market today. You look at how enormously high and just like astronomically high the, public market is. And we're seeing so many people take their money out of the public market and say, oh, my better returns will probably be made in the public market. I mean, in the private market. Um, And so I think today is the best time to invest in um, women in particular. Um, And then something else we found is you have to pick your bucket. So we say, you know, it's really important to me that we're investing in women. I grew up in a technology oriented community, as you Um, mentioned as a fourth generation venture capitalist, but I didn't think I could go into it at first because I was female and I want to change that. So investing in women is incredibly important to me, but because we said, Hey, we're looking for women. And we put out this like Batwoman signal. We started getting thousands and thousands of pitches um, of women looking for a female investor because there's so few, we need more of those as well. Um, and then we also realized we have over 50% minority led companies by accident because we were looking for the best deals and we went off of the traditional Stanford, Harvard, Sand Hill road path that I literally grew up upon. 
Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we just can like inject a little more diversity into it, but because I looked for something different, I, you know, diversity all, all comes together. And what we believe at Halogen is diversity breeds success. Um, there's so much data around that when it comes to companies, you right. know, that's diversity of age, race, and gender. So those were kind of like the topics I was um, trying to bring up, you know, in this article. And I also, yes, and by the way, I'm so sorry, I swore. Um, the, the handful of trolls that were very upset about the article hadn't actually read the article I realized and were just very upset that I swore. So I am sorry, my grandmother would be rolling over in her grave right now, <laughs> um, but you wouldn't have read it, you know, if I hadn't sworn in the title, I think. Well, and uh, I think that's an important point. So first of all, thank you for that background. That's actually, you added a layer of context to it that I didn't catch in the article. And so I think that gives it a whole new meaning because I think a lot of people don't, I never would have guessed that women who happen to be wealthy over index in terms of the investing in charity versus investing in other companies. So that does add a, a very interesting layer. And I think, again, I mentioned it up front because I, I think you swear, I think we've in coffee, like you've sworn you're not approved, but at the same time, that's not your normal persona. And I took it as something where it's like, I need your attention and I'm going to do something that's dramatic to get your attention. And so I think when people do that, it's not a, anything you need to apologize for because you're doing it for the dramatic effect and the impact of it. Right. So that made a lot of sense to do that. You did touch on something, a couple points that I, I have in a later question, but I'm going to cover it now because I feel like it's germane. So in this, you mentioned that you've seen almost 5,000 deals in the last year, right? Of which these are all companies started by women. You made 10 investments, which is kind of crazy to think of how many, all that chaff you have to sift through to get to the wheat. But of the 100% female-founded companies in your portfolio, as you just mentioned, over half were BIPOC, for anyone who's tracking, as I sort of just learned what this meant a few months ago, Black, Indigenous, people of color. These, these were the founders, right? And so I have a thesis as to why this is the case, but I'd love to hear it from you. Tell us why it is that ethnically diverse founding teams outperform all white founding teams by 30%. And this is data, I love that you included this, supported by... Uh, a Kaufman Fellow Research Center report, and we can try to include a link in the, the podcast wrap up. But why is that, that uh, these folks, you know, these, these types of founders do so much better than sort of the traditional norm? There are so many reasons, but I definitely touched upon a couple and I encourage you to read the article and go dig into the research that we've uh, referenced. Um, you know, um, for women in particular, uh, and similarly with BIPOC founders, um, they're underfunded. And if you actually like think about it and um, compare what you know these women uh, and diverse founders are raising money for, and they're not raising the dollars they need, like they're just underfunded. And then you look at the Ubers of the world and they're not profitable. <laughs> Because right. they've raised so much money. So if you think about that, of course, the returns are better. You know, we have an incredible founder who raised $1.3 million, may never have to raise again. She closed out last year, which is means her company is two years old. She closed out last year at $20 million. And like, wow, that's just what you get when you invest, uh, you know, in women and just a more diverse pool where 
granted when you're building a great tech company like an Uber, et cetera, you do have to find these, this perfect blend of growth versus profitability. But what there is a lot of great research around this too. What is true is um, women are, create more profitable businesses. So one, they're underfunded. So their every dollar is going a lot farther. Uh, they raise half as much money according to a Dell study. They double the return. All Raise and PitchBook just came out with some data and research last year about how they also exit a year earlier for a larger return. So for those of you who invest in funds and have to wait the full 10, sometimes 15 years to see a dollar back, invest in women because it's more of a like six or seven year on average return. Um, so there's so many reasons, but one I, I would just focus on is they're underfunded. Yeah, and that was what I was expecting you were going to answer because there's a scrappiness. They're underfunded. They're they don't you know you have the cream really rising to the crop right because they have to fight probably twice or three times as hard as everybody else does. So the folks, the, the people, I don't want to say folks. That's the wrong word. These founders, these amazing people that actually do make it through and do get the funding, have worked probably so much harder and are so much more scrappy and appreciative and know really how to do it. And I would also argue that there's an angle of, I'm sure they're seeing things and seeing opportunities that people don't, which is probably an argument for anybody in terms of a diverse board, diverse executive teams, diverse teams in general is, you mentioned it, age, uh, sex, ethnicity, uh, all of those things that I'm a guy. And so I see things from a 52 year old male's eyes, right? I have kids, I have a wife. And so I try to have some EQ around that, but I can't see the same things you do. I can't see the same things that, you know, someone who's 25 and black sees, I can't see something that's 72, right? Someone who's 72. So I think really thinking through, like, how do you look around corners? And that means looking for people that do bring very different perspectives to the world can only help bolster your business. I do. Yeah, want to... Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's also just like getting out of your network, you know, everyone gives right. like, um, you know, the Stanford, Harvard, Sandhill Road, who sort of founders this bad rap. And obviously, like they helped build Silicon Valley, like they're not bad people, they've done incredible things. Um, but what a lot of people don't see. And in response to this article, which has had over a million impressions around the world, I never, I've posted one thing ever on Medium, this blew my mind. Um, and the response um, when people are uh, frustrated with it is just like, you know, I try to hire women. I, there aren't any women around. I, um, you know, try to invest in diversity. There aren't enough diverse um founders around. And it's like, no, 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 you actually have to actively like get out of your network, get out of Silicon Valley, like go meet new people at different types of events, seek out new accelerators, you know, uh, actually like you do have to go branch out in your network. And I think that's what happens is people get trapped in their box and don't realize like, no, also like, how are you going to find the better opportunities and the newer opportunities if you don't kind of get outside of your box? So you do have to like look harder, look farther. And then something else you mentioned that I just want to, I want to say is um, I don't want, I don't want people to like feel sorry for women. Like women are, are fantastic. Fundraising is so hard. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or black or white or whatever. 
fundraising is so hard. And so regardless of if they're women or men, you know, you have to be a really great founder, (laughs) but you, you know, it's not like you should just throw money at women. Again, we're not a fucking charity, like look for the best deals and invest in women. But I do think you need to get out of your typical box and, you know, seek out those founders in a new way. That's a really important point. And it's really the crux of, I think what we're talking about is whoever you pick, whether it's hiring them for a job, whether it's speaking in an event or having them on a podcast, they should be exceptional at what they do, but Mm -hmm. take those blinders off and look in new places for those people, because guess what? There is a lot of, there are, there's a ton of talents out there. And if you know, in the right places to look or those other networks or different boxes, you'd be surprised. You know, I've looking for black speakers or or people of color, um, people of, you know, uh, Latinx background, when you're looking for people to, to join the show or to speak, you know, there are people that I have a friend and I won't name that person's name, but they tend to have white males on their show all the time. And you know, that's what that person's network is. And he's, I, I tip my hand a little bit. They have been dinged, you know, publicly for this and they have an awareness, but it's just one of those, well, why aren't you doing anything to address it? And it is frustrating. And so I appreciate your reminder of don't pity women or don't, you know, don't, think of them as um, disadvantaged, but it is a, this is an opportunity to open your eyes and to be more well-rounded in terms of anything that you do. And particularly when it comes to investing, I do want to shift gears a little bit. This is still related to your article and congrats, by the way, I mean, a million impressions is not surprising because on my mind and it keeps picking up new life. I don't know. I mean, you probably feel this with your podcast sometimes where you're just like, Whoa. And then to see people, I mean, I just posted this little thing on Medium, but I think also women in particular have just felt this, but we've had incredible men tweet about it, quote it, and, um, you know, we need men. It's part of the whole conversation. Absolutely. This is, we're all in it together. It reminds me, have you ever connected with Katie Couric? Because I'm just thinking she, she's been on the podcast. She does a daily um, newsletter and I'm going to give a shout out. It's called uh, the wake up call. And it is an amazing little recap of all of the news that's in the world, but also like binge worthy shows or fun things like that. And so the reason I'm thinking is like, I think she would really appreciate reading this and maybe doing an interview with you. Cause she also does podcasts and um, I'm just making sure I'm getting the name of it. Right. Uh, but I'll, I'll make that intro if you'd like to her team. Cause I think that you, oh, I would love that for her to hear and, um, you know, she would really appreciate it. wake up call. Yeah. So I, I wanted to make sure I got that right in her honor. Cause otherwise I I'd be doing her an injustice. But, I would love that. I have a funny story about her because yeah. I'm not in touch with her. I don't know her super personally, but, um, I was her first tech person on her talk show that she her most recent talk show that she had the Katie Kirk show and so they'd call me to do these tech segments and it was always so hilarious because I'm like six feet tall and she's this like beautiful tiny, tiny I have a picture next to her and, six feet tall as well and it's like and, maybe what four, and I would wear these ten, yeah five. and I would wear these heels yeah I would wear these heels and my agents were like stop wearing heels you're so much taller than her on this show she's not i mean you know she she knows that she's petite and uh it it is funny though because i do have a picture that i've shared that it's me with her and it's like she definitely looks like she's significantly smaller so so when i ran my talk show you know i do all these segments like for katie couric and a couple of the segments i did one was blue apron 
which then went public. Uh, and one was this company called Epiphany Eyewear. And um, they told me that Epiphany Eyewear, so they sold actually right after. So we got on the Katie Kirk show or they, I got them on the Katie Kirk show because they were kind of like those glasses that recorded what you were watching, but they were sunglasses. And it was the first one of those. And um, I got them this exposure and they, I bumped into the guy at a conference and he's like, Jesse, you're the reason we sold to Snapchat. Holy cow. That's <laughs> like really I got, you got us on Katie Kirk. Cause I was just doing this like silly segment and we got Katie to wear them and this whole thing. And uh, you know, they were always looking to me to do the funny tech segments and stuff. So she would know me, but I, I'm not in touch with her. It was always through well, the producer. I'll reintroduce because I think this would be a great story and it's relevant and it is something that, you know, I think it would be a nice reminder of. So we'll see where it goes, but I'll be happy to do that reintroduction to her team. Thank if, you. Thank if you're you. open to that. Uh, speaking of great women, I do want to touch on something that you touched on in the article and that is, uh, there's this woman that people may have heard of, and her name is Ruth Bader's, Bader Ginsburg, and she is someone that has meaningfully impacted all of our lives. We lost her recently. Obviously, there's a, you know, a, an appointment to replace her, which is, I feel like it's been rushed and it's a little unfortunate, but we won't go into politics. But because of the fact that you did sort of invoke her in this article, I can tell she's uh, a passion point for you. Talk a little bit about what she meant to you and, you know, why you thought to include her in this uh, amazing article you wrote. I mean, she has fought for so many rights for women uh, in particular that, you know, defines how we live our lives today. And I think, yes, of course, she's an enormous hero as is Sandra Day O'Connor. And, um, you know, I think they're yeah, it's, it, it was devastating. It was just one of those deaths that you're like, Oh God. And now this like during COVID and she was just such an icon of, um, everything inspiring for women. And it was like, you just always felt like you had this incredible woman on your side, uh, in the Supreme court. So. Yeah. And it's like, why couldn't you have held on just for two more months? But <laughs> I'm a belief Damn that it, Ruth. <laughs> I think for reason, and we, we opened this, I think we weren't on tape before, uh, when you said this, but I feel like there are a lot of silver linings that do come out of COVID. And while I don't see the silver lining that's coming out of this, I will say, I think there's some galvanization among uh, folks that sit in the democratic party. And again, we won't get political, but I know that was one of the things that is a unifier. And I think, you know, both, both parties need some unification and we need some bipartisan love. So maybe it can lead to that. And that will be, you know, not, not for not. Um, Agreed. One of the things that I do want to talk a little bit about, and it's I'm going to evolve this question a little bit because you've started to answer some of it, but in your article, you mentioned women who have built billion-dollar businesses. I'm sure you will have some of these in your portfolio in the not-too-distant future, but Spanx, Sprout Pharmaceuticals, Stitch Fix, Eventbrite, Care.com, House. What do these women have in common? I think you've talked about sort of what women founders and, and successful CEOs uh, do, but these feel like they're in some rarefied air, right? It's hard to become a billionaire in general, irrespective of sex or age or gender or race. What, what have you seen with these women that really stands out to you that makes them, um, so special? And, and I'll ask a follow on to that too, which is just as you're thinking about that, are they acting differently in terms of how they invest in women uh, as they go forward? Or maybe that's too broad a question to ask, just assuming. No, that's a good question. 
you know, they would act in a particular way. Yeah, no, we, I actually was very thoughtful about the companies I did mention um, because there's so many more I could have mentioned, but I wanted to highlight that it, it's not just, you have Spanx, that's Sarah Blakely, who started a unique fashion company that she never raised any money. She actually bootstrapped the whole thing. So if you think about that, that's a, that's like just, that goes to everything I'm saying. Women are more profitable. They, you know, double the return. Like she didn't raise any money. Jesse, can can you do me a favor? Just because I love not everyone listening to this show will understand investing terms and not that that's a super complicated ones, but can you explain to people what it means to bootstrap versus taking venture capital? Yeah. So she didn't raise money from anyone else. She started it. I believe it was the stories with uh, $5,000 of her own money. Um, and it's now well o- worth well over a billion dollars um, and it's still privately owned. And so she owns that entire company. So she owns a hundred percent of a billion dollar business and that's incredible. And then when you go through the other companies I mentioned, obviously like um, Sprout Pharmaceuticals. I'm very close with Cindy Eckert, who founded it, and formerly Whitehead. Uh, and she, um, you know, sold that for a billion dollars, um, and now invests that all back into the ecosystem. That was a pharmaceutical company, first female sex drug. When there's, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like over 26 or something on the market. You would know better than I would, Erin. Um, and uh, that are male oriented. This is the the first female. Um, and I wanted to just hit sort of every uh, different type of business. So we have house on there, sun run. So you see like women are starting businesses in all different industries. Um, and so I think that's, that's really important. And then in terms of what, uh, you know, I think people often think, oh, well, women start beauty and fashion businesses. First of all, beauty and fashion are multi-billion dollar industries. So like, why wouldn't you like that's, and also beauty on average sells for 12 X multiple returns on average. Uh, and L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, all the biggest players, they're just sitting on cash. They don't want to build new businesses. They just buy them. And you look at like Cody who just bought um, Kylie Jenner's cosmetic company for 650 or no, she sold it for a billion, but I think she just got like 650 million cash or something like that. Um, you know, these are enormous opportunities. Yeah. Just yeah. 650 million in cash. Yeah. She just like walked away with 650 million cash. That's so she's been great. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have beauty. You also like, I don't even remember if I chose this one, but Cloudflare is found. You, you had some additional well. ones in the article. I trimmed it back just so I didn't give as many as you did, but you had, I think another three or four that were in there. So apologies. Yeah. And you have, you know, care.com went public. I mean, you have these incredible businesses. So women are starting businesses in all different industries. And so that's important to know. And then in terms of what, you know, what we're looking for in founders is I literally want women who can breathe fire. I want women who can walk through walls and nothing's going to get them down Um, because the world is a tough place and building a business makes it even tougher. You are climbing these mountains and, um, and what I've found also is you want, you want founders who will also kind of like roll with the punches. Um, I get concerned when I have a founder come to me and pitch their business and say, well, we have to go this way. And if we only go this way, this is the way we're going to go. We can't, we can't even like, we have blinders on, we can't even look to the sides. Uh, We have to just go straight ahead and just businesses aren't built straight ahead. You, 
I'm really proud of our founders because I always was kind of looking for this, you know, it's called coachability. Um, I was always looking for this kind of like openness, coachable um, opportunity with these founders and just making sure that like, I, I would say things like, what if your manufacturing plant shut down? What if like we were in an international pandemic and, you know, everyone stayed in their houses, then what would you do? You know, and you throw them these curveballs and then you see how they roll with it. Um, and I, I'll do that in the first or second meeting with them. And I really stuck to my guns about this, like openness, coachable factor um, in our founders. And because of that, our portfolio is flying, doing incredibly well during a very tough time because they've just rolled with it. And they, you know, within weeks of COVID had launched new verticals, had moved entire businesses online and just, you know, were so incredible in terms of their pivots that um, I'm just like, that is how I'm going to always invest. So I think you're looking for a couple different things in founders, but that's personally what I look for. Well, you're consistent because when I did re-listen to our podcast, you talked about coachability being an important thing. It is interesting though, because at the opposite end of the spectrum, you did say you also don't love founders that come in and they're like, I've got these five different things and we could do this and do that. So you like a vision and you like okay. some focus, but you obviously COVID has proven if you can't pivot, then you are dead in the water, right? So a lot of the most- That's a good three-year update too. If I said that before, because the coachable- you know, it's like you're going with your gut in a lot of ways in these early stage companies. Of course, I look at their financials and I do as much analysis as I can. But at the end of the day, it's like, do you feel good about this deal? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I really did stick to that coachable thing. And I never knew if it wor would work. But now I'm so like COVID has proved that this is so important to me. And obviously we look for a unique product and a million great traction and um, defensibility opportunities so that, you know, they can kind of protect themselves, but we have a hundred item diligence checklist we look for, but that's something in terms of like finding that, I don't know, gene or whatever you want to call it in these, in these women. It's a common thread. I think I've had probably, I don't know, a half a dozen uh, investor venture folks on this show and to a person, the people matter probably the most in the equation. Those other things are critically important, right? The defensibility and the uniqueness and the, you know, the total addressable market. But if you don't have someone that has the right characteristics, it just doesn't matter because they're not going to take a great idea and execute it and be coachable and be flexible. So thank you for mm -hmm. saying that. And thank you for your consistency. And one last funny thing is I have a name, a woman named Maya Ollie who does all of our social for us, but she also supports on the podcast. And we always, pick out a quote and we pick out a title together and then she writes up the social copy. So I think the fire uh, breathing part is clearly going to be the quote. So um, Maya, we, we made it easy for you today. That's, that will be our quote that we're going to use. I do ask one more serious question before we get into something a little more lighthearted. And that is in toward the end of the article, you talk a little bit about um, what does a future look like where women have access to more capital, build more diverse teams and found billion dollar businesses on a regular basis? What does that world look like? And when might we see that, you know, more regularity, like you gave us, I think 10 companies, but why aren't there a hundred companies or a thousand companies that have women, that women founded or led that are billion dollar businesses? I hope we see this sooner rather than later. I, you know, based on statistics and just data people have collected over the years that I've read, um, it sounds like it may not be in my lifetime, but I think that in my lifetime, I can 
continue to push this agenda forward. And um, I hope that all of you out there listening, um, you know, do that as well. And it's not just about women pushing the agenda, like a story that I lightly mentioned in the article as well was um, I, while pitching my first fund, I walked into an office of a pension fund somewhere in the middle of the country. And, um, and these, uh, it was a bunch of older men. And they, when I opened my deck, the weirder thing is they had asked to meet with me. So it was like very strange, but it was a a room of older men when I opened my deck and showed the page that um, said, you know, yes, we invest in female founders. They, one guy literally spat his coffee out at me laughing. Like he was like horrified. Uh, And he was like, what, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, actually, okay, uh, I guess we'll start at square one. So um, here's the data. This is actually a really great business case. And, um, and in the middle of this conversation where I was just scrambling to prove to them that investing in women was a great opportunity, not to mention like our great track record, et cetera. Um, uh, this younger guy came in who was clearly like new there and he came in and he said, Oh, I know that company. Oh, my wife loves that company. And it was this moment for me where I realized like this next generation of, um, men is going to be incredibly important and incredibly helpful. Uh, and so if you are a great, uh, guy out there, if you are an incredible man out there, champion women, invest in women, you know, point out that there's not women on your board, uh, point out that there's not women on panels. And I think that like, we need all of you. Well, thank you. And yes, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, I did read that story and there were a few other funny stories in there that you shared. So I'd encourage people to go and check that out. So as promised, I do want to shift gears to be a little more lighthearted. All of this next question, I guess, could be pretty heavy or serious if we want to, but I've started asking a new question since we last talked, Jesse, and that is, if I could grant you one wish, any wish, what would it be and why? I wish that we lived in a country where women were equal. That is a good one and a profound <laughs> I'll stick one. stick to it. The right answer, by the way, is I wish for a thousand more wishes because I don't disqualify that. But if, <laughs> yeah. if we're not going down that path, that is a noble. Apparently I stick to the rules. Yeah. No, you're, you're good. I appreciate that you're, you're not skirting the rules because um, no one has skirted it yet, but I expect that someone will at some point. I do want to pick up on a fun conversation we had last time because I do ask, uh, and I won't ask you this time since we already know, but I always ask people about their deserted album, deserted island album. And we talked about Queen and I double checked it just to be sure. But since we last talked, there was a movie that came out called Bohemian Rhapsody. So first of all, I want to make sure that you did see it. Did you love it as much as I did? And we talked about Queen's greatest hits as sort of your album, even though we normally limit greatest hits um that has sort of become an album in and of itself but uh what were your thoughts and and hopefully you did get a chance to see that and or at least listen to the bohemian rhapsody soundtrack oh my god i have such a good three-year update for this so i um yes of course i saw it i've seen it multiple (laughs) times and 
but like, I'm glad that I now have your podcast to show that I was a diehard queen fan previously. I love that. I was like, he's talking about this before, you know, this became a thing. Before it was even written. Um, and I, well, I don't know that for sure, but, um, I, I love queen. My dad just raised me on queen. We both love queen. And so last summer or summer before last, obviously, because COVID was the summer. Um, I saw that queen was touring and I got us tickets. And so my dad and I, and one of my best friends and my mom went to the queen concert, um, where Adam Lambert sort of stood in, um, uh, as the lead singer, um, cause obviously he's sadly deceased and it was maybe the best night of my entire life. It I was, thought, I, I thought you were going to tell me you met Adam Lambert and the rest of Queen. Which <laughs> shock me if I didn't, I didn't. Um, but it was, I just danced all night and it was like, Oh, it was so great. If they ever do it again, everyone has to go. It was like, Oh my God, it was so good. Um, also all of their songs are good. You know, even the ones that aren't in the movie, although the movie had all their really like greatest hits, but there's still some, anyway, just all the queen greatest hits, like the double, the double, it's the double CD. I don't know. I guess on iTunes, it's like just a lot more songs. (laughs) No, it it was, it made me smile because it was before Bohemian Rhapsody and I've always loved queen, but it up-leveled my love of them and diversified some of my knowledge about them. And it made my now 13 year old daughter, a big queen fan, which also made me very happy. And the funny thing is one last digression before we get into our last question. Uh, My family watched American Idol for a long time, which I was never really into, but I do remember watching the season that Adam Lambert actually was on. And I don't think he won if I remember correctly, but we knew immediately that he was the guy that was going to be Freddie Mercury's villain, right? Because he sang several Queen songs and Simon Cowell, who is not the easiest judge, takes people to task like that. And he was absolutely blown away by how much um, he was able to channel Freddie Mercury. So it yeah, all comes he was really circle. good. Yeah. Yeah. He was so good. And they, they did a cool thing too, where it was like um, Freddie Mercury and then the band and they actually had a video of Freddie Mercury singing and then they, so they included him in the hall. Oh my God. It was so great. It was so great. Oh, well, I, yeah. I have to, once we have live music again, I'm hoping that they will <laughs> pour at least one more time because yeah. I think I was away when that came out to the Bay area and I missed it. And I'm really upset that I missed it because that is a concert I would love to go to. It was so cool. Um, but way, yes, still a big queen fan. Yes, it's gotten me through COVID for sure, well, which is kind well, of like being on a deserted island. <laughs> so true, Jesse. So true. Well, it is funny because we did talk about the fact that if we did a podcast again last time, I would, you know, you would sing Queen for me in the next one. So I did not hold you to oh. that. I figured, you know what? Wait, can we sing it together? What should we sing? Well, I'm going to let you sing because I certainly will not. I will not horrify people. I like to sing, but I am not a good singer. So you can hum oh a bar God. from, uh, you know, maybe Mr. Fahrenheit or another you know, one. <laughs> from Rust or. Oh, my God. I just love. I'm not going to get the words right, but it's like the like killer queen. It's like, she keeps them away, Shonda, in her pretty cabinet, just medicate. She said, just like Mary Antoinette. That's all you get. And you clearly have a good voice. So maybe on the next one, when we do that in three I'll years. I'll prepare next time. Well, <laughs> this you, was I'll just 
yeah, I'll give you more than 12 hours to, to get ready for that. So with that, our final question, and it's relevant because in COVID on our deserted islands, we have lots of time to watch streaming video and we've never had more options than we have now. And I'm sure that you have probably 50 that you could name, but uh, if I made you pick a, your latest binge worthy show that you're willing to share with everyone, which uh, show would you pick? Okay. So I have like a couple categories here. So it's just, you know, I think everyone probably feels the same. There's quite a few good docu-series that take you to this like very dark place. And then I have to balance that mm -hmm. with um, something lighter. Yeah. So I'd say in terms of, oh my God, how many, so I love serial killer docu-series. Um, and anything like cult worthy. And so I've been watching a whole bunch of like cult series, which is just, you know, I got the wild, wild country. And then I watched Waco and that got very dark. So then recently I watched The Vow, which is sort of like a lighter cult documentary, but it's still really crazy. And I just was fascinated because it's still kind of going on. And the way that the um, episodes go is they kind of feel like they pull you into um, the cult where you're sort of like, I might sign up for this executive program. And then you're kind of like, okay, it's getting a little bit weird. And then by the end, they're branding vaginas. And so you're like, how did, how did that happen? But you kind of feel like the cult member. So that was just, I think, thought very like artistic as far as a docu-series goes. Um, and it was fascinating too, because I used to watch that show. Um, uh, oh my God. It was like the Superman show Smallville. And the girl is like the head, one of the heads of the cult, like one of the girls from that show. Um, and then, yeah. And then all these other, I don't know. It's just cults fascinate me. And we actually have a founder who was formerly in a cult. I feel like I come across these people who've touched a cult in some way every once in a while. And they just fascinate me. I think, you know, nothing against them. I just am sort of like, it's a weird world out there. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I didn't see the conversation heading in this direction. But <laughs> one more reason why I love talking to you, Jessica. <laughs> never fail to surprise and to uh, delight. So I appreciate you sharing your love of cults and cult docu-series. Not really your love of cults. I shouldn't say that. You're fascinated. Not my love. Like, like don't join one. Like, but you know what? To each their own. Like, maybe there's good ones out there, but I feel like cult denotes that it's like probably not a good thing to join. But, you know, just you believe what you want to believe. <laughs> you know, that's the world will be a better place if we let people do that. So... <laughs> With that, we will wrap up. Um, this has been a delightful conversation as expected, an important conversation. And thank you so much for sharing more about that you know, article that got us together. This investing in women isn't a fucking charity. Please go out and read it. It's on Medium. We will link to it from this on the blog um, with the wrap up. But I've been talking for the last 30-ish minutes uh, with good friend, smart person, good person, love or appreciator of cults and founder and general partner of Halogen Ventures, Jesse Draper. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This was so fun. Of course. And this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What's to Know podcast show. And we will see you on the next episode. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, 
and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash what to know. 